Hello, and welcome back to the Inclusion Solution Live podcast. I'm your co-host, Gabby Gonzalez, here in the studio with founder and CEO of the Winters Group, Mary Frances Winters, talking about a topic that we talk about all the time, racial justice at work, and so much so that we ended up writing a book that just came out. Um, Mary Frances, how are you checking in? I'm checking in well today, Gabby. How are you? Oh, good, good. I'm excited because I see we have two guests today. I see here on my left here, Beth Zemsky and then Dr. Terrence Harewood. Well, we're so happy to have you uh, join the Winters Group uh, for, for this. Happy to be here. Yeah, let's start, let's get started. And Terrence, you wrote a chapter called A Developmental Approach to Racial Justice. Why don't you tell the listeners a bit more about who you are, who you be, and why you uh, wrote this particular chapter? All right. Well, welcome, welcome, everyone. Super excited to be joining you both here and joining you as well with my friend, um, Beth Stemsky. Uh, my name is Terrence Herewood. So here, Rabbit in the Woods. And why did I write this chapter? Um, in my experience uh, working in this field now for over 20 years, um, I found that a lot of leaders, a lot of organizations um, are very interested in doing this work. But a lot of the ways that they do the work oftentimes it's not mindful, not very considerate of where people are developmentally. So a lot of organizations, for example, you know, take on these new initiatives, add these programs, and they ask employees and staff members to do things that I believe they're not developmentally ready for. And so they're, you know, for example, during the, the wake of the George Floyd murder a couple of years ago, we had a lot of leaders jumping on the racial justice bandwagon really starting to introduce ideas of racial justice, anti-racism, but we're not considerate of where people were. And what was happening essentially is that a lot of people were resisting because they weren't ready for those topics, weren't ready for those conversations, weren't ready for the level of engagement um, that the leaders thought was, was gonna happen. So that's part of the reason why I, I wrote this chapter. Thank you so much, uh, Terrence. And when we said to tell you, when I said to tell you a little bit more about yourself, you did just tell a little bit. So I think that our listeners would like to hear just a little bit more about who Terrence Harewood is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I like to think about myself as, first of all, a recovering professor of multicultural education. Um, I worked at the University of Indianapolis um, for about 19 years, where I taught in the Department of Teacher Education. Uh, prior to that, um, I was in graduate school, but I taught for four years at Miami, Ohio. Um, and so a lot of my work, a lot of my experience has been in the higher ed field, but during that time, um, I was also serving as a consultant. So I worked with a lot of organizations, um, including schools, um, and as part of my role with the Winters Group, which has been um, part of the consultancy that I, that I described since uh, about 2015 or so, had a lot of exposure to a lot of organizations and, and again, noticed how they were approaching this work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um, so when you say a developmental approach, what, what do you mean by developmental? Because I, I have found over the years that sometimes people don't really understand when you say a developmental approach, people say shake their head. Yes, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but why don't you tell our listeners what you mean when you say developmental? Yeah, thank you so much for that. So to think about that, you know, if you think about like, you know, when we, when we do schooling, right, in the, in the world, um, we want to make sure that 
the, the material, the content, the information that we introduce to, to kids who are, you know, like at a, a kindergarten level, it's going to be different from fifth grade or sixth grade or seventh grade, right? Um, so essentially, a developmental approach is very similar. It recognizes that people are at different stages in terms of their readiness to engage in this type of work. Some people might have had a lot of exposure, a lot of experiences, a lot of education, a lot of opportunities to reflect on this work and therefore are able to hold a much more complex perspective and are ready for much more, much more rigorous kind of like content or experiences around this work. On the other hand, some people have not. Many people have lived in monocultural, monolingual environments and have not had a lot of exposure to people who are culturally, racially, linguistically, religiously, or otherwise different from themselves. And so therefore, you know, when you ask them to engage in this work, it, it, may, it may be new, it may be overwhelming, it might be bewildering. So they may find themselves becoming judgmental, might find themselves uncomfortable. And so the same level of work that you would give people who have a very basic developmental level based on their experience, exposure, education, is not the same level of work that you would give to people who are much more advanced or who can hold more complex perspectives around this work. So in a nutshell, are you saying meeting people where they are? Absolutely. And that is important. We, we say that and we believe that oftentimes intellectually, but we don't oftentimes apply a developmental lens, a particular framework. Um, and that's why I think the chapter is so important because we actually use the intercultural development continuum um, um, uh, based on a, a theory that was adapted um, from the, uh, the developmental model of intercultural sensitivity um, to really own in on what is it that people might be experiencing? What is it that the organization might be experiencing based on the level of intercultural competence as measured by that particular tool? Um, and then we invite, we invite dialogue, we invite educational experiences to move people based on where they are developmentally. Well, I'm gonna let you talk about that a little bit more, but I'm going to also now um, get um, Beth into the conversation. Yes. Um, so I know that you are the principal troublemaker of Zemsky and Associates Consulting, where you do intercultural organizational development. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and what brings you to this work? Sure. I'm, I'm just going to rewind and give you some background, partly uh, with the clear intention of knowing that there are so many listeners who might be coming at this work in a different place. So Terrence has this deep, rich background in education. My journey was very different. I was originally trained as a psychotherapist. Um, and did direct service for um, 12, 14 years and was doing direct service with the LGBTQ community just as HIV hit. And um, I thought I might even been a good therapist, um, but I felt like I was sending my clients back out to um, the, a con social conditions that we were desperately losing. So uh, COVID was not my first pandemic, um, for better or worse. But there was something about the way HIV hit in the beginning where it was men who had sex with men who were always represented to be white. IV drug users were always represented to be black. And clearly those two groups were not actually that. Plus early in the pandemic, um, there was a lot of finger pointing and blaming Haitians for being vectors of infection. So there was sexuality, race, immigration. We didn't have the language of intersectionality back then but it led to me really thinking about my work in a very intersectional way. So in terms of my own career, I stopped doing direct service and I became a grassroots community organizer. And I was a grassroots community organizer um, for our statewide LGBTQ 
organization as we got um, basic civil rights um, for LGBTQ folks in Minnesota. I share that story because I just want to invite your guests listening to the podcast to think that we have so many different pathways to doing this work. Um, and then I was recruited to go, go to the University of Minnesota to um, be the founding director of the LGBT program and supervise the Diversity Institute. So that's kind of my path. And, and then I became a consultant, which means I don't have a job and I work all the time, essentially. Um, but my path to the intercultural work, um, and I wanted to just pick up on something Taryn said about that, is I've been doing something that we call different things, diversity, multicultural, anti-racist, what we've called the different things over time. And I've been doing that work since about 1988. And what I would notice when I was doing anti-racism work, power, privilege, using that methodology, is that in any room I was in, there were about 20, 25% of the people who were the head nodders. No matter what I said, they smiled and they nodded at me. And for those of you who are um, listening or watching as facilitators, you know we love that. Because yes, I'm making sense, they're with me. And then there are about 20, 25% who walked out more angry and defended than they walked in. And everybody else in the middle looked confused. I thought I was a good person. Why are you telling me I have privilege? Why are you telling me I might be racist? And because I don't play baseball, having a 25, 30% success rate was not a good enough, wasn't good, right? And so I realized, first of all, I was not being effective. And also as a psychotherapist and as a community organizer, I had a core value which was meet people where they're at and bring them along. And I was honest with myself when I was doing that work, I wasn't meeting people where they're at and bringing them along. I was meeting them where I wanted them to be and then blame them when they were not there. Why aren't you more woke? Why aren't you understanding what I'm saying? And what I realized was all I had was a hammer, so everything looked like a nail. And I'm one of these people who loves tools. Like I have like a pegboard with different tools outlined on it. And I, love tools, but I wasn't using the right tool for every job. I was only using one tool. And so that's when the model that Terrence is talking about, the intercultural development continuum, found me. I didn't really find it. I, I, a, a colleague that some of you know, Newa Abdurrahi, and he introduced me to the continuum. And I thought, wow, right. Here's somebody that's effective that also matches my core values. That's how I got into this developmental work. I just wanted to pick up on that because your story resonates so much with me. That's pretty much the same approach that I that I had in terms of with my students as well. Um, I, I was thinking these students are, you know, future teachers and future school leaders. So certainly they see the value of this work. And when they didn't, when I saw that I was getting resistance from students, I thought this is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I was blaming the students. I thought it was them. And it's only after I put on the developmental lens that I realized, oh, whoa, you know, it could be me. It could be the fact that these students are not ready for this stuff yet. So it, it offered a different perspective and a different way to, to operate and to, to orient around the work. Well, and one of the things that was core um, to my shift in this was really understanding what was my role, right? So Terrence and I talk a lot about what's my goal, what's my role, what do I do without losing my soul, which was my core values, right? And my role was to facilitate. Well, to facilitate actually means to make easy. So the question that I had is who am I making this easy for? Am I making it easy for me 
or am I making it easy for the recipient to actually learn to meet their goals? And so thinking about my role as a change maker is facilitating somebody else's learning towards some kind of mission, vision, or value is what um, captivated me about using a developmental approach. Could we, pa could we pause here and um, tell our listeners and just give our listeners um, the short version of what the um, IDC is, the Intercultural Development Continuum is? Terrence, I'll, you, you want me to do it? I'll go, I'll go ahead. Uh, maybe I'll talk about the first three developmental stages there, but then you'll jump in. <laughs> yeah, so the basic premise of the model is that, again, our level of exposure, our level of experience, our level of education across cultural differences and similarities will impact the level of, or the range of ways that we can think about and the range of ways that we can respond behaviorally when we face with a situation involving cultural differences and similarities. So the first of the developmental stages essentially uh, is called the denial phase. Here's when an individual likely haven't had a lot of exposure, experience, education, perhaps grew up in a monocultural, monolingual environment. And therefore they may find cultural differences to be pretty bewildering. They may be able to identify some facets of cultural differences, but because they thrive in, in situations where there's this commonality, where there's this simplicity, it's hard for them to kind of navigate cultural differences you know, without feeling overwhelmed. Perhaps as an individual have more complex experiences or more exposure, they may come across a situation where there are lots of people from diverse backgrounds moving into the community, uh, perhaps you know, moving into their workforce, and they are struggling to try to figure out, now what do I do about these differences? And so what tends to happen at that developmental stage is that uh, individuals tend to polarize us versus them, where there's this overemphasis on the difference and it's hard for them to see the commonality. And so two, two ways this shows up, one, I'm uncomfortable. I feel like my culture is under siege. I judge the other culture. I feel like my culture is superior. The other way this shows up is uh, again, um, I, I'm uncomfortable, but this time I'm uncomfortable because I have a judgment about the way how my culture shows up, the way how people from my culture uh, tend to treat or engage with others. I might, be sh I might be experiencing guilt or shame about my own culture. And so therefore I judge, but I judge my own culture negatively. And I have a very flattering and optimistic perspective towards the other culture. The third of the developmental stages is the is the most common stage. This is where now that I, I, I've, I've kind of really looked at these differences, I start to realize that, you know what, it's not our differences that matter, it's really our commonalities. And so I start to emphasize the commonalities in a way that I mask or minimize differences that may make a difference. I might be uncomfortable. I might not be uh, wanting to be experienced as being stereotypical, biased, discriminatory in any way. And so I kind of mask my differences. Or if I'm a person who identifies as, as, as a BIPOC, I may recognize that if I lean in and truly bring my differences to work, I could be putting myself at risk for not getting a promotion, for getting a negative evaluation, for being penalized, for being scrutinized, for being ostracized, for being marginalized, for being accused of playing the race card, gender card, queer card. So I may use this minimization, focusing on the commonalities as a coping mechanism, sort of a going along to get along strategy, if you would. Beth? Yeah, so I'll talk about the final two stages because there are five, but I want to back up for a minute and just say a little bit about the theory underneath this. Mm -hmm. So the theory underneath the developmental continuum is that we all experience difference every day. Even when we think um, we look alike, we have so many multiple identities and intersectionalities, we're always interacting across difference which is why it's an intercultural model, recognizing there are multiple differences in intersectional identities at every time. And the key insight of the model is that it's not the accumulation of our experience or our exposure, 
it's how we experience our experience. So, you know, Mary Frances or Gabby and I might have the exact same experiences throughout our entire life. And you all lean in with curiosity and the desire to learn more. And I lean in with fear and anxiety and never want to have the experience again. So we used to think in the field that if people had exposure, they'd have more sensitivity or more competency. And this model suggests it's not exposure. And it's really, the reason it's developmental is that at each of the stage of development that Terrence just talked about, it is what is my ability to experience commonality across difference with complexity. Because if I can't experience commonality, I can't build a relationship. I have to find a way to connect. But if all I do is find commonality, I can literally whitewash the differences. So it's a complicated cognitive and emotional process to, to be able to develop the capacity to both hold commonalities of, both hold complexity of difference and complexity of similarities. And so at each developmental stage that Terrence described, there's more or less ability to find commonality and hold difference, right? And the idea developmentally is if I can do both, which is kind of a complex developmental cognitive emotional process, if I can do both, I can see what we have in common, I can see what we have different, then I can figure out how do I shift my behavior as I go from situation to situation? How am I culturally agile as I go from situation to situation in order to meet my goals. So the last two developmental stages is in minimization, as Terrence was saying, you're overestimating commonality, you're minimizing differences. That's why it's called minimization. In the next developmental stage, which is called acceptance, I don't know why it's called acceptance, but I can now hold multiple perspectives. I know what my lens is. I can take responsibility for my lens and my identity. And now I can see you through your eyes. I can hold multiple contexts and I can hold multiple perspectives. Then adaptation, which is the final developmental stage, at least theoretically, is not only do I get who I am in my lens and my cultural context, I can see yours, and then I'm, I'm willing to take the risk to do something, to do a thing, try a thing, to try to be adaptive in order to reach a goal. And there are some key questions in adaptation. Terrence already mentioned one of them. Do I want to be right or do I want to be effective? The other is, do I want to be right or do I want to be connected? Do I want to be right or I want to establish a relationship? On a good day, I get to be right and effective. <laughs> On a good day. So that's the developmental model. And it's really about how do we hold complexity? How we hold complexity, how we have confidence in what we're learning and humility to know we're never going to know and willing to try a thing, do a thing, learn from a thing, be iterative. And that's actually a fairly complex developmental process. And part of what was not working for me in the work I did before is I would tell people things. I would just tell, here's the impact of racial injustice. Now go and do a thing and not help them actually gain the skills to do the thing. So it's like you weren't adapting to them, but when you started to, you saw a difference. Totally. I want to mention um, that you, when you said um, acceptance, I don't know why it's called acceptance, because what I like to say is acceptance does not mean agreement. That's acceptance right. means that we accept that there are multiple ways in which people come at the world, multiple perspectives, multiple, multiple lenses based on our lived experiences and our education. So we accept that. Uh, okay. But we, we may not necessarily agree. But when you're when you're at acceptance um, adaptation, 
as Beth was saying, you can hold that complexity that I don't actually agree with this, but I need to understand it. I need to understand the history of this and where this came from if I'm going to forge an effective, you know, uh, effective relationship. Because I think some people get hung up when you say, oh, I accept, you know, I know I don't accept that kind of cultural practice. Okay, mm -hmm. fine, you don't accept it. But, um, you know, I mean, you don't agree with it, but you accept that this is all in the scheme of, of what's in what's in the world. And we're curious about it rather than judgmental at the mm -hmm. earlier stage of, of um, polarization where we have a much more simplistic understanding of difference and not this, this complexity. So it's a really powerful tool. And Ch Terrence's chapter um, uses actually a storytelling approach to walk through what an organization, what individuals in an organization, how they might behave if they are at different um, stages along the continuum trying to um, uh, uh, tr trying to be uh, inclusive and create a an equitable organization. Yeah, Terrence, going back to your chapter, like, what do you think is the most difficult aspect of moving leaders along that continuum that you and Beth just beautifully outlined for us? Yeah, so, so thank you so much for that question, Gabby. Um, I think that part of what we are seeing is that the more developed you are, right? The more complex perspective you are along the developmental continuum, the more likely you're, you're, you'll see leaders being able to actualize racial justice at work. And so the challenge then is to how to support leaders to be able to hold this complex perspective. So leaders need to develop this capacity, if you would. Um, part, of, part of my thinking on this, John C. Maxwell in his uh, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership talks about the law of the lid and he argues that leaders can be only as effective as their, their, their capacity, right? Or their lead, if you would. So if a leader is at a five, right? In terms of their particular level of, of effectiveness, then they can only lead the organization thus far, right? To maybe a four or a five. So in order for the organization to grow, that leader would need to increase their capacity, increase their, their, their ability to, 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 to lead and to influence more effectively. Um, Unless, right, that leader is willing to get themselves out of the way and allow others in the organization, others, leaders in the organization to really, you know, to take charge of, of that process. And so we think about the same thing from an intercultural development perspective. If a leader is only operating from a place of polarization, they, they're judging differences, right? It will be hard for them to think about how, you know, racial justice and having equitable policies and practices could be beneficial. So if that leader and if that organization is going to grow and develop, you need to have a preponderance of leaders, preferably leaders who have, you know, positional power, for example, right, to be able to, to, be able to develop their capacity to, to recognize, uh, you know, subtleties and systems and policies and practices that they couldn't see when they were operating from the earlier developmental levels. So, for example, um, would this be a good example, um, Terrence, if someone, if a leader is operating at polarization um, defense, as an example, the expectation for people coming into the organization, particularly um, historically marginalized people who might think differently, have different experiences, would be that they need to do it our way because our way is the better way. Is that how that might play out? That is absolutely Absolutely correct. That's a really good example, Mary Francis, right? Um, again, my the perspective from that that leader operating from polarization defense is like, you know, these people are a threat potentially to the way how we do things around here. So if they're gonna come into this organization, they need to just buck up. They need to just leave their culture at the door, 
you know, so we're going to have rules in place to assimilate them to the dominant way that we do things around here, because I want to preserve my culture. A leader who's operating from acceptance or adaptation could recognize, though, that, again, that these systems are complex and that in order to drive innovation, they need to hold space for both diversity in terms of differences, as well as similarities, right, around common goals. Um, and so, therefore, they're more likely to have a policy where they're creating space. They're having ERGs, for example, right, giving place for people to, to have conversations and to and to really engage more meaningfully so that they can feel like wow I belong here in this organization I can contribute my uniqueness is valued ERGs employee resource groups or affinity groups for our listeners who may not know that um that acronym thank you so much for that I'm curious Beth with your background in psychology just is there something inherent to being a leader that makes it harder for them to work toward this goal of being more adaptive well, you know, one of the things that I have as somebody who's directed a nonprofit is um, leadership is lonely. Um, it's lonely. You know, leaders are expected to know everything, be able to do everything, and they don't always get the support to actually learn and develop, right? Because they're supposed to have arrived fully formed. And particularly if the leader has any marginalized identities, and or they're the first of what? A first woman, a first LGBTQ folks, first BIPOC folks. It is, it is a challenging, lonely place. And particularly in this climate where there's sort of a, a watching, right? Folks feel like they're often at risk if they take a risk and make a mistake. And there is almost no way to deeply move into racial equity and justice without taking risks. And we're kind, and we're in sort of a risk avoidance atmosphere for leaders. Um, and the the and the other thing I would say, Gabby, this might not be the answer to your question, but one of I, I've done significant work uh, around you know this idea about if leaders or organization climate culture is in polarization, minimization, etc. One of the characteristics of minimization as a development orientation, particularly organizationally, which Terence said most people are in, is there's an overestimation of commonality. So in polarization, we get a focus on compliance. In minimization, we get the, we want you to be different. So we care a lot about hiring for diversity, but onboarding for similarity. Because we want you to be different as long as you're different as much like us as possible, right? And so what winds up happening in those environments is also the presumption of harmony, the presumption of unity, rather than the creation of harmony or unity or shared meaning around that. And organizations of minimization are often really conflict avoidant. So it's harder to bring stuff up mm -hmm. around this. And that makes it even harder for a leader to even say, look, I have dissonance here. We're not meeting our missions and values. Um, and so it can be really lonely for leaders. So I think leaders need a lot of support. Uh, I, in my work, I do, a, um, and Terrence and I have done some of this work together. It's really important to do leadership coaching with whatever the training is, whatever the other activities. Like we do a lot of action learning around um, organizational culture change using a developmental model, but it's also really important to do support and coaching of the leader. I want to add one, one thing, if that's if that's okay, uh, because what we find is that to develop this this intercultural competence, right? Leaders need to develop one self awareness. 
<laughs> and then the second thing is basically awareness of how others may be experiencing their experiences. And what the research is telling us is that this idea of self-awareness, especially cultural self-awareness, is particularly very, very, very challenging for leaders, right? One of the reasons it's challenging, as Beth mentioned before, right? Sometimes it's hard for, for leaders to get feed forward. Who's going to speak truth to power, right? And in the absence of that feed forward, they may be convicted that their way is actually right, Right. And so therefore less likely to bring in these multiple perspectives and therefore less likely to be self-aware, which can inhibit their the level of intercultural competence. This is great conversation. So Beth, you know, you've been talking about um, the work that you've been doing for, for so many years and some of the um, challenges of that uh, work. And I often say the work can be fatiguing. So what, what tools do you use to fill your cup uh, mm -hmm. in this work? Uh, for your own self-care and well-being? I love this question. And Terrence and I have done a few workshops on this also. So let me just say, I, I'm going to ask you, I'm just going to back up a tiny bit. Um, one of the things, partly because I'm a, a psychotherapist, is I don't do any work that's not trauma-informed. Actually, during the pandemic, I got recertified as a trauma clinician because as a colleague of mine said recently in a keynote, we are not okay. We are just not okay. And it's important to recognize the level of trauma we are all experiencing. And when we're experiencing trauma, it is way harder to work on racial equity, work on racial justice, and, and shift and adapt because that takes risks. It takes confidence and humility. It takes the ability to be agile and flexible. None of those things I know as a trauma clinician are things we do in the middle of trauma. So one of the things that um, we, Terrence and I have been talking about is what does it mean to be resilient? And I wanted to say a word about resiliency because a lot of times those of us with marginalized identities is it just be resilient, which is often understood as just forget all the pain and trauma you have, just fuck mm -hmm. up. And that's not what I mean by resilience. So resiliency is the elasticity and flexibility, but Alter Starr, who's a writer I respect, says it's also about the ability to cultivate your innate aliveness. So if we think about resiliency, about what are the things that help us cultivate our late, innate aliveness that then help us to meet the trauma that's going on in the world. And so one of the questions that I've been thinking a lot and I've been asking participants is what are the resiliency practices that you have gotten from your cultural background? Every culture has resiliency practices, right? And whether it's a faith culture or a community culture, or an ethnic culture, we all have resiliency practices. So, you know, my personal practices is like garden and I bike, right? A lot. I grow more kale than anybody should eat. And I bike, you know, regularly 20 miles. And the first five is the next five I'm getting in the zone. And the next 10, I'm like, right? So all that's good, but also I have to say that I draw on the collective wisdom, um, I'm Jewish, and I draw on the collective wisdom of 5,000 years of um, survival. There's a generic Jewish holiday card, if you know it. Um, we, we were oppressed, we survived, let's eat. Um, it works for every holiday other than Yom Kippur. Um, so I have a fairly rich community and cultural survival practices that are deeply ritualized within a calendar of Jewish holidays. And you'll see a rainbow flag and stuff back here. Um, I know from my experience of coming out as a queer person in 1977, I have to add, um, that 
there is a pivotal piece in my work in my own resiliency practice about the primacy of love. So if I come at my work from a place of anger or hate, that gnaws at me. What I mean by the primacy of love is that one of the things I love about the queer community that I think we have to teach the world is the transformative power of love. Because anybody who's managed to come out has said having authentic relationships and love is so important, we're willing to risk everything else to have it. Yeah, abs absolutely. That was the theme of my keynote, our uh, Racial Justice at Work Summit. I said that um, no matter how many action plans we have or how many um, strategies we have, um, if our heart is not there, if we're not coming, and I use the term agape love, if we're not coming at the world with, with love, none of that is going to be sustained and none, and none of us will be, and none of us will be um, healed. And I love what you were just saying. Well, I don't love um, that we're all not okay, but thank you for uh, lifting that up because I think that is so important because I think it's affirming for people to be, for you to say that and for this, oh, I'm so glad she said that because no, I'm not okay. But in our culture, oftentimes it's not okay to say you're not okay. And if we don't think it's okay, we don't reach for the resiliency practices right. that are so core to mm -hmm. all of our cultural context. So that's part of self-awareness. It's what is my culture? What are the resiliency practices that I have? How do how do I am I aware aware of those things? You know, as we move through this challenging time, and I have to say, as somebody who lives in Minneapolis, I live about three miles from where Mr. George Floyd was murdered. Um, this is something that's you know, as a community, we've been how do we how do we rebuild? How are we resilient given the trauma that we're living through every day? That's why we need love, and that's what's bringing us together today. Um, Terrence, do you have anything to add here as far as what fills your cup? How do you stay, how do you keep going? Thank you so much. I appreciate that question as well. And you know, this, this is always a journey. Uh, obviously it's not a destination, right? And for me, um, I find that, that I get refilled in relationships with, with, with others. Um, I'm blessed to have an incredible, incredible team of, of folks that I work with. Um, we have these conversations and I feel juiced and I feel replenished. Um, I have some really, really strong connected friendships. Um, I, and, and, and I use those friendships, not only to pour into others, but to get my own cup refilled as well. And that's one of the resiliency practices that I lean, lean in on very heavily um, in such times as this. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for your energy, both of you. Thank you, Beth. Thank you, Terrence. Thank you to our listeners. Mary Frances, thank you as well. You want to take us out? Thank you, Gabby. And thank you, uh, Terrence and Beth. This has been an incredible conversation. Um, uh, we just appreciate you both so much. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, continue to reimagine racial justice at work. Thank you.